Welcome to Mommy Brain Revisited, the neuroscience of parenting. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Paluski. Today, it's my pleasure to talk with Dr. Larry Young, who is the William P. Timmy Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the School of Medicine at Emory University. Dr. Young studies how genetic, cellular, and neurobiological mechanisms regulate complex social behavior, including social cognition and social bonding. And we're going to talk more about that and oxytocin's role in bonding today. Super. So thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Really looking forward to talking with you today. So thanks for that. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm going to just start us off and maybe you can just tell us why you're interested or how you got interested in the neuroscience of relationships or, or bonding. Yeah, actually, so I did my PhD uh, looking at the neurobiology of sexual behavior in lizards and actually homosexual behavior in lizards. Uh, and that's because my, my interest was really in the evolution of behavior and um you know, in my PhD, I studied two species of lizards, one which was a, a normal run-of-the-mill sexual species that had males and females, and the other was an all-female species that only had females, uh, they, but they still engaged in sexual behavior. So I was interested in comparing the brains of those two animals that had very different sexual behaviors. And then when I went on to look for my postdoc, I wanted to keep that comparative approach. And that's when I discovered the voles. Um, there had been a recent paper published in Nature, and I realized, hey, there's these two voles. They're both in the same genus. They look very similar, but one is very social and forms pair bonds, and the other one is not social and doesn't form pair bonds. And I said, wow, this would be a great model species to try to pick out what's different in the brain that gives rise to this difference in behavior. So, you know, I got into this not because I was interested in relationships, but it just so happened that the species that that I began studying um, because I was interested in the evolution of behavior had this really interesting social bonding behavior. Oh, that's interesting. So you kind of came at it from a, a different angle uh, and then obviously have been continued on in this research for, for years now. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it's been 25, more than 25 years now. And, you know, I'm still just as excited about the voles now as I was, you know, 25, 26 years ago. Uh, there's so many cool things, you know, technology keeps changing and uh, giving us new opportunities to answer different questions in different ways. So yeah. it's still fun. So maybe we should talk a little bit about just what we're talking about when you're talking about social bonds or relationships. But you do more work on pair bonds, right? right. But obviously right. we have relationships with a lot of different individuals. So in right. terms of pair bonding, we're talking about more monogamy-type relationships. Right, so, right. Yeah. So if you just look at different kinds of bonds, you know, the, the most prevalent bond in mammals uh, is the mother-infant bond and the infant-mother bond. You know, basically all species have 
that kind of bond where the mother uh, wants to care for the offspring. But um, in just a few species, we also see bonds between the mothers and the fathers, the mating pair. Uh, and after they mate, something happens and they form this bond. And in many species, they last a lifetime. I mean, what's really cool to me, you, you might think of this as kind of an evolutionarily advanced form of, of reproduction, but 90% of birds do this, right? So it's very common among birds. They form these bonds between the mating partners. And I would suspect even dinosaurs, you know, I'm not a paleontologist or a dinosaur expert, but just from evolutionary, you know, mechanisms, if 90% of birds have it, you can bet probably dinosaurs were the same way. And that's because both males and females in birds can both can contribute equally to raising the offspring. But when you have mammals, only usually only the female can provide milk. Um, but anyway, so the, the maternal bond is very prevalent. Pair bonding happens only in about 5 to 8% of animals, of mammals. Um, and that's what I study in these voles. But, you know, we have many different degrees of bonds. You know, you have other kinds of kin bonds. You know, we even experience uh, bonds between us and our dogs, our yeah. pets. But we also have bonds with members of our community, members of our religion, our political groups, our football teams, all kinds of things. And, and I happen to think that there's a shared common mechanism. It may differ between a little bit between these different kinds of bonds, but, but I think that there is a common underlying mechanism that contributes to each of these kinds of bonds. So what is this mechanism that contributes to these bonds then from your research or from the research of others? Yeah, so um, we've been studying for a long time now oxytocin and its role in pair bonding. Uh, we, we didn't discover that. I didn't discover that. Uh, I have to give the credit to uh, Sue Carter who did the first work, and then she was collaborating also with Tom Insel. But so, you know, oxytocin is the molecule that is responsible for giving birth, uterus contractions during birth and milk letdown during nursing. And it's also responsible for um, mothers bonding with their babies. Yeah. This has been shown in rats and as well as in sheep, um, sort of stimulating that maternal motivation and, and bonding in sheep, for example. Um, well, it turns out that that same molecule is involved in the pair bond between a male and a female prairie vole. It's not just in the female, it's in both males and females. Males also have vasopressin. That's a little bit different story, but both males and females have oxytocin. We have the same amount, basically, of oxytocin in the brain, the same amount, approximately, of receptors in the brain. And what we've found in the voles is that when they mate, oxytocin is released in their brain. And what it does is increases the salience of the stimuli of the partner, the smell, maybe the sounds uh, of the partner. And that partner then gets linked into the reward system through, you know, neural processes like synaptic plasticity. And then that partner becomes inherently rewarding and they want to be with that partner. So that's the short version. You know, there's an interaction with dopamine 
that is shows commonalities with uh, addiction. And so, you know, I, I really think that a pair bond is kind of, it's very similar to an addiction to another individual. Okay. And I think we often, we see this, especially in moms, right? Where they love the smell of their baby or they're really Yeah, fine. it's all that, you know, you, you look at a mother when she has her baby, you know, she'll say, isn't this baby the, mo- the cutest baby in the world? You know, and I look at it and it just looks like every other baby to me. But that mother thinks that baby is so special. It smells so special. And that's because all those features of the baby and humans, there's a big visual component with the face and all, just all the things about the baby, but also the smell, probably the sound. And all of that, you know, becomes rewarding. And the way it becomes rewarding is because the parts of the brain that are processing sensory cues um, are projecting to areas of the brain that are involved in reward. And I believe that those projections become more hardwired. There's more there's synaptic plasticity so that when the mother experiences those cues, it's inherently rewarding. It activates the reward system. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's the same. I mean, it's the same in in partner or romantic relationships as well, as you mentioned, but also, the, you know, often the, the more time you're with the person or the nicer things they do or you're, you know, things like this, you're, you're attracted to them, how they look, how they smell, and those are all sorts of positives, and they run on the same sort of neural circuitry. Right. Um, and, you know, when, when people are forming these kinds of bonds, romantic bonds, it's really difficult to form a romantic bond without that... Uh, partner simulating some dopamine release too, right? You got to like it. You got to, you know, interact with them and have some pleasure as well. And that's the dopamine being released. And, you know, in voles, we think about that happening in sex and it happens in humans and sex as well, but it also can happen just when you're doing f- fun things together. And it's that combination of, of the oxytocin, which is released, you know, when you look into the eyes of the partner the touch of the partner. It's not just about sex. It's about all these kinds of social interactions. And you combine that with the dopamine and then the partner becomes rewarding. It's interesting because I think oxytocin especially is is something most moms uh, or parents will talk about um, and a little bit more so with dopamine. But I think when we talk about the maternal brain or the brain in general, there's a lot of different factors that are working together to help us to form relationships, to parent and to go about our days essentially. Right. And, 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 and I, I sort of, you know, in my work, the way I tackle trying to understand that is to breaking apart, you know, to best that I can, you know, uh, at least in models, you know, what, what each of these different modulators might do. And um, when we talk about oxytocin, you know, you can Google oxytocin and you'll find the love hormone, the cuddle hormone. Uh, but actually, you know, what my mine and other people's research suggests is that really it's about increasing the signal to noise in the brain so that your brain can perceive and detail the cues so they can see the individual face. It can tell the smell of one individual from another. And then, you know, so it's like amping up the processing of the 
the features of uniqueness of the other individual. And then when you combine that with dopamine, you know, those features become rewarding. And, you know, so it's not as simple as just a love molecule. You know, you can't just sniff some oxytocin and fall in love. But, you know, then when you layer that on to like the neural circuitry and thinking about, you know, these cues come into the amygdala and then they're projected to areas like the nucleus accumbens and VTA releases dopamine into the nucleus accumbens, just like in maternal behavior. Yeah. Um, all that sort of links together and then you get synaptic changes and, um, you know, it's, it's a really, really fascinating puzzle of basically what makes us fall in love. So maybe tell me, what are your, you know, your favorite, most exciting areas of your research to date? In- yeah, well, there's a couple. One is I find very interesting in that um, voles are not all monogamous. Not, I mean, sorry, not all prairie voles are monogamous. There's a lot of individual variation, just like people. Yeah. Only in the wild, only about 60% of voles form bonds. The other 40% remain bachelors. And if you look in the brain... Uh, there's correlates of that so that in uh, some prairie voles have lots of oxytocin receptors in this nucleus accumbens, this reward area, and some individuals have very little. And um, we've actually marked that down to a little snip in the gene coding the oxytocin receptor. That means just one little base pair difference. Well, maybe not so simple as one base pair, but with that one base, we can predict whether that animal is going to have high levels of receptors or low levels of receptors. And that also can predict how early life neglect, for example, will impact how they can form bonds later in life. So to me, that's really cool because it's, it's like a change in the DNA sequence, a very simple change in the DNA sequence that really changes the level of expression in the brain that then changes how your environment affects your ability to form relationships later in life. So that's that's one area that I'm really fascinated about because I'm really interested in, you know, genes and evolution and how random mutations in DNA can give rise to diversity in behavior. And then the other area that I'm excited about moving into is uh, – doing the the kind of circuit manipulations that people are doing in mice now where you can control certain neurons in a circuit with light, like optogenetics or dreads. And um, traditionally, we haven't been able to do that in voles, but now we've been able to use CRISPR to make transgenic voles, and now we can turn on oxytocin receptor neurons and see how that affects bonding. And another area that's, that's kind of new is um, empathy. Yeah. Consoling behavior. The, these voles, not only do they form bonds, but if their partner is distressed, they will actually go over and try to soothe the partner, console the partner. And we found that oxytocin acting in the anterior cingulate cortex which is the same area that's involved in empathy in humans, uh, sort of regulates their, whether they care that their partner is distressed and whether they go over and uh, console them. So, you know, I've 
sort of come to the realization that, you know, these voles are not, they're not human. These voles don't fall in love and these voles don't show compassion, but they do show the, what I think are the evolutionary antecedents to those behaviors. So pair bonding um, is really the evolutionary antecedent to love. And this consoling behavior is the evolutionary antecedent to compassion. And they share common mechanisms. So humans still have some uniqueness there in the, the way, you know, our cognitive abilities, the way that we can think about things in ways that voles can't. But still, I think that the same mechanisms are driving love and compassion in voles, and sorry, in humans. The empathy idea, that's great. Like, that's a really interesting, uh, I think, new area of research, right? I mean, we talk about empathy a lot, but the neuroscience of it. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that oxytocin is involved, you know, uh, suggests that empathy, the evolutionary origin of empathy really is in the maternal brain. So if you look at rats and mice, um, when their pups are off the nest and they are vocalizing, calling their mom, ultrasonic vocalizations, uh, the mother, you know, she pays attention to that. She will go over and pick that pup up, bring it back, and groom that pup. That's a kind of empathy. We, we don't really call it that because it's maternal behavior. It's what, what mothers should do, right, is to survive. But when that becomes unconstrained, so it's not only directed to your direct offspring, but is directed to your partner, or even to others, your siblings, or others that are not related to you, but maybe live they, that they live with, then it becomes empathy. And in humans, that goes beyond our direct family, and it's our community, and other human beings. And maybe that's what made us be very successful working as groups because we have compassion and empathy towards others that we can work together as a group, as a society. And I think it, it all has its origins in the maternal brain and that oxytocin that helps the mom give birth, provide milk to her babies is also, you know, directing that care towards others in our community. It reminds me of the work, I think, of like mothering begets mothering. Alison Fleming's written about this. And often the experience with your mother can affect how you mother. But also what you're saying is also can help or be related to how we connect with other people as well. Exactly. I mean, and in voles, we've seen that as well, where um, uh, if pups are... are raised so that in the first two weeks of their life, they have little periods, three hour periods per day of social isolation. So they're, they don't have contact with their mom and dad or their brother and sisters. Um, then when they grow up, a portion of those will not be able to form pair bonds. So it's not just mothering begets mothering, but if they don't get the parenting, nurturing, licking and grooming and all of that, when they grow up, uh, it is transferred to their ability to rate, relate to their partners. And we haven't done the studies about consoling, but, you know, empathy, but I can imagine that is the case. So I do think that that parenting 
that a that an infant gets because of the oxytocin release that the pup is getting, the infant is getting when the parent is giving them that nurturing, it's helping building circuitry that's involved in social bonds later in life. I mean, it makes sense, right? And I think we all talk about early life experience impacting later life um, on so many domains, but it's really interesting to think of it as how oxytocin plays this role, how this, what we like to talk about, the love hormone, right, plays a role in so many different aspects of relationship. I think, but taking it one step back to maybe bonding, and this comes up a lot in with parents talking about it on parent forums or mom forums is how long does it take to bond? Oh, I think that uh, that varies. Um, You know, like in our voles with just uh, our paradigm that we use uh, with mating, you know, where there's lots of dopamine and lots of oxytocin going on, it can be as little as six hours but without mating, they still can bond. It can take 24 to 48 hours. But that, that's a very special kind of bond that happens between partners. You know, in humans, a, a bond probably can take longer with between partners. You know, it can take longer to fall in love with someone. It, it, so my point is, is that it depends on partly on the neurochemistry that's happening. And, of course, the neurochemistry that's happening depends on what's happening between, in the case of mothers, the mother and the infant. So uh, if the mother is giving birth, lots of neurochemistry is happening. Lots of oxytocin is being released. Lots of dopamine is being released. After the baby's born, touching that skin-skin contact. We now know that that, that touch, that social touch, uh, direct, well, stimulates the oxytocin neurons to release oxytocin. And that all helps uh, form that bond. But uh, people can form bonds with babies without giving birth. So through adoption, yeah, um, yeah. it's it, it doesn't you know this. What I'm telling you doesn't mean that you can't form a bond without giving birth. Maybe it takes a little longer. But things that can facilitate that are that social touch, that looking into the eyes, making the baby feel that that the mother has a connection or the father has a connection with that baby. These are all things that are just constantly releasing dopamine and uh, oxytocin. And, and and you can contribute to that, you know, to, you can help that release by providing that n- nurturing, that care. Yeah, I think that's really a a positive thing for parents to hear. I mean, we talk about skin to skin and how important it is, but to actually hear that it does release chemicals. There's a biological component. It affects your brain. It can help. And that's why it's helping. It's important to remember. There's little things that go on in your actions and your behaviors that can actually change how your brain is functioning and can improve your relationship. Right. And, and it's not just the, the immediate change in the chemical. Like if you drink a cup of coffee, you get some caffeine, but later in the day, it's all gone. No, this is something that it, it has an effect right away, but it, it seems to be affecting in a long-term way how those neurons 
those neural circuits are connecting and building um, that can influence things in that individual's life much later as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in thinking about this, because we kind of just talking about relationships or we're talking about mom and baby or dad and baby, and we can maybe talk more about that later. But then, you know, when you have a baby, then the mom who has usually a romantic partner is also bonding with the baby. So is there a trade-off in that relationship or a difference in the oxytocin (laughs) signaling during that time? (laughs) I mean, you have kids. Yes, I have five kids. And uh, (laughs) so my immediate answer is yes, there's a trade-off. But that's just from my experience as a dad, not as a, and a husband. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I don't so I, but I'm not mom, but not from a so scientific I'm, point of view. I I I I don't want to um say from a from my that I have scientific evidence for that. But um yeah, that but that is an interesting question. I mean, uh certainly I I can see that very powerful um maternal bond uh that you know, occurred with my wife and and her children. You know, sometimes it felt like there was a trade off, but that was just maybe me. Uh, but I, you know, I think that we there are some differences there in the bonds between mother and babies and partners. Um, I don't quite know what those are. Okay, we, we don't know what those are. But yeah, that's that's a, that's an interesting question. Is to really is there really a sort of a brain mechanism that requires a trade-off or, or not? But um, certainly I think that that mother infant bond is so powerful. It, it really cannot be broken, right? It's it or very, very difficult to be broken. Romantic relationships can be broken. Yeah, that's like, true. They, I mean, it can be devastating to, to lose a romantic relationship, but it, uh, I think that our brains are, you know, designed or not designed, but uh, organized in such a way that um, we can deal with that. But it's very difficult to break a, a mother-infant bond. Yeah, and the, it's very, very tragic. Uh, I think the loss of a child is the greatest, one of the greatest losses you can experience. As right. A the, the loss of a child is is, is, a, is definitely a great loss, the, you know, one of the greatest losses that you can experience. But you know, next to that is probably loss of your partner. And we've actually studied that in in Vols as well, where we found that, you know, because we we all know people in the community or relatives where they've they've been in a relationship for a very long time and uh, one of the partners passes away. And suddenly the soon after that, the other one starts developing health problems and sometimes they uh, will pass away not too long afterwards. And so, you know, losing a partner increases mortality and increases um, rates of depression and cardiovascular disease. And and we found in voles the same thing, that if, if a vole is pair bonded and then their partner disappears, uh, they show signs of depression. They don't struggle to get out of difficult situations. They kind of give up. They're passive. And we've worked out the brain mechanism, part of the brain mechanisms of that 
And it seems that when they lose their partner, there's a withdrawal of oxytocin. Just like what might happen in a mother if she loses her baby. And that withdrawal of the oxytocin causes a depression-like behavior. So, you know, even though the the effect of the, the grieving is, is maybe different, um, it can still be very powerful. And it's interesting that, that both losing a partner and losing an offspring may relate to this oxytocin system, the ancient maternal hormone. Yeah, <laughs> the ancient maternal hormone. It's interesting because I think with motherhood, we often talk about, well, prolactin, and I talked with Dave uh, on the podcast earlier about that, uh, which we always think is just for lactation, which obviously it's not now that we know more. And oxytocin, everyone's like, oxytocin, that's what makes you love your baby. And of course, as you mentioned, it's important for labor and delivery, and it's important for milk ejection. Um, But, you know, women have C-sections and women have don't breastfeed and people adopt and they still can bond with their, their child. So it, it does more than just um, those kind of physiological or processes associated with motherhood in, in humans. Yeah. That, that raises a point that I'd like to uh, talk about a bit. And that is, you know, when, when a mother is giving birth and it's causing those uterus contractions and when she's nursing and it's causing the milk ejection, that's the oxytocin that's released into the blood. Um, but there's also oxytocin that's released in the brain. Yeah. Th- those oxytocin neurons also project into the brain, into brain areas like the amygdala, which is involved in emotion and the nucleus accumbens, which is involved in reward. And, you know, that's the the cells that are are the projections that probably just the skin-to-skin contact is releasing oxytocin. Uh, Looking into the eyes is releasing oxytocin into the brain. Yeah, so um, you shouldn't think that because a mother doesn't give birth or she has C-section or she's not nursing that she's not getting that oxytocin. Those are just things that sort of a sure-fired way to make sure that it it does happen in most cases. But the, you know, the other little things, the other interactions that you have with the child where you feel a real sense of closeness with that child, your brain is also releasing oxytocin into the brain. Yeah, and I think this is really great to remember because I also know as a mom, I have two kids and I, uh, when talking about breastfeeding, so many women are like, oh, it was just so great. It felt so good. And for me, it was just practical thing that was efficient, but I didn't have the surge of oxytocin that quote unquote, that people talk about in terms of like, oh, I love the baby so much. I'd love it. I I could breastfeed all day. Uh And I think it's good to acknowledge that there's a lot of variability in what's going on and what you can, you're feeling, but in terms of how you love or how you bond, it doesn't mean it's not dependent on these other processes that sometimes we talk, we think are the reasons or are important for bonding. Right. But you probably uh, had other kinds of interactions that you had with your uh, babies that were definitely rewarding that you, that made you feel, wow, that baby is so cute. And, um, Oh yeah. Cutest babies in the world. Mine. Okay. Yeah, exactly. No, and I did, we did lots of skin to skin and my husband as well. Uh, And, uh, you know, 
lots of just hanging out with baby and enjoying uh, the two two kids. Uh, we had them about 20, mo- 20 months apart, so it was uh-huh. a busy time, but it was fun. It's but interesting. I, my In my family, you know, we I, I told you we had five kids. With their, yeah. The youngest one is off in college now at the University of Alabama, and uh, but we still have three dogs at home, and now it's like those dogs have replaced the kids on a day-to-day basis, and and now the dogs are the cutest things in the world, and uh, the dog looks up at mom, and they get all the attention. So there's a lot of oxytocin being released there too. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've sometimes oh, well, I've gone through a phase where I wanted additional children, but then we ended up with uh, you know kittens or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sheep and things like that although you don't really bond as much with the sheep but yeah you definitely having uh you can bond with your pets and that's for sure yeah and, and yeah, yeah. The, there's actually been studies showing that when when dogs look into their owner's eyes the owner releases oxytocin and when the the owner looks at the dog's eyes the dog releases oxytocin and um so there's you know during domestication of dogs we've actually selected for them to elicit that same response so that it makes us want to care for them almost yeah. like members of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And they are family members, right? I right. mean, yeah, definitely. There's also an imaging study, I think on moms and their brain activation when they're looking at pictures of their dog versus pictures of their child. I have to go and look at that one again. Uh, of yeah. course, there's similarities, but also differences there, I imagine. Right, yeah. Um, but that's really interesting. Yeah. But there, there's also studies with brain imaging of, of um, moms looking at their babies as well as looking at their partners. And they see some very sa- similar kinds of activation patterns. And that sort of fits what I was talking about earlier of the, the same brain areas being activated. Um, by, you know, cues from your partner as cues from the baby. There's still some differences there, you know, but but part of it is still there and that, that helps create that bond. So now that we've been talking a bit about oxytocin, I'm thinking also to bring up this whole idea about oxytocin and mental health. So mm-hmm. you mentioned briefly the partner loss and how these individuals or these the the voles who had lost their partner had depressive like behaviors and a loss of oxytocin and what really is the role or can you talk about oxytocin in terms of mental illness because i think there's a growing body of research there but we haven't really tapped into it so much at least with regards to maternal mental illness but maybe you can talk Mm -hmm. in general uh, more about oxytocin's role in mental health well, yeah, so the, there, there is a possibility that, you know, oxytocin may be involved in, for example, postpartum depression. Um, we, we recently published a study looking at IV pitocins because most women in the United States or probably around the world uh, get injections of oxytocin to augment labor and delivery. And um, so there's you know, real questions about whether that might be affecting the maternal brain and maybe giving rise to um, postpartum depression. And in our survey of several, uh, you know, a dozen or so other studies, 
did not show any real evidence for that. Uh, there still needs to be some, maybe some better original work done. But it looks like that uh, postpartum oxytocin administration is, or sorry, the uh, augmentation of labor with oxytocin doesn't seem to be having a robust negative effect. So um, not a big concern. But it's, it is possible that, you know, the brain's own deficits in oxytocin could be affecting postpartum depression. Um, but there's really not a lot of evidence for that right now. So that that's an area for future research. So, But in terms of other mental health issues, uh, it turns out that this maternal hormone that, you know, focuses the mother's attention on their baby might be actually useful in disorders like autism. Yeah, so tell uh, us about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, autism is a disorder. It's, it's a heterogeneous disorder. So people with autism have a lot of different uh, phenotypes or, you know, capabilities or lack of capabilities. But one thing that's common is that the brain does, does not treat social cues as being particularly important or salient. They don't pay attention to the faces of others to read their emotions, to read the emotions of others. Or So there's just a, a deficit in reading the social world. And it turns out, you know, the work that started with in oxytocin's role in mothers and then extended to pair bonding and then to other kinds of behaviors in mice, you know, it suggests that oxytocin enhances the salience of social stimuli, meaning the importance of social stimuli, the way that your brain perceives social stimuli and, and how well it's transmitted across different brain areas. And that turns out to be potentially very useful in disorders like autism. So there's a lot of research done now giving people with autism intranasal oxytocin and seeing well, the, some of the results suggest that it increases the amount of time looking into the eyes of others and ability to read the emotions of others and things like that. And so, you know, this is why we are doing the a lot of the research that we are doing is ultimately to figure out how you might be able to um, capture that property, uh, tuning the brain into social cues and using it to improve social functioning in disorders like autism maybe even schizophrenia. So this maternal hormone may actually turn out to be the key to helping us tune into others if we have some of these uh, mental disorders. Yeah, interesting. It's fascinating because it would also be so easy for the treatment, right? Because you said it's intranasal, so it's a spray, essentially. Yeah, it's a, it's a spray. I mean, it's not quite so easy because it's yeah. difficult for it to get into the brain, much of it to get into the brain. So we might have to develop other drugs that can maybe release endogenous oxytocin better or drugs that can easily, more easily get into the brain. But it's also, you can't just give it randomly because, you know, if you give it to a child and it increases their attention to the social world around them and they get on a school bus and the other kids on the school bus bully them, that's going to amplify that negative feeling, right? So um, we think that you, you would have to pair that with some kind of therapy, like behavioral therapies where you're teaching the child how to do 
social skills properly or how to read emotions and things like that. And this oxytocin is just a very temporary way to amplify the social signals around them. You know, I think of it as, um, if you remember a television screens that had static on them, uh, and if there was a movie playing in the background, but you couldn't really see what was going on because of the static, maybe that's what a, a person with autism sees in their social world. But if you could turn a dial and make all the static go away, you could see the image very clearly. And that's what we think oxytocin can do. And if you pair that with a session where you're teaching the child, it can help them learn how to read emotions, how to navigate the social world. So it's not as easy as popping a pill, but you know, this is what science is about. We have to, you know, uh, we get ideas about how the brain works and then we have to figure out how we can engineer solutions to problems that can improve people's lives. So then what's next for your research in this area? Well, one of the main things is um, just is going deeper and deeper into the detail of the circuitry. The brain is really, it's kind of like a computer. It's, it's much more complicated than a computer with all these networks that are communicating with each other. And, um, you know, in the past, we've figured out what molecules are important and what brain areas are important. But now we can actually identify the connections between brain areas and we can control them remotely with light and um, really determine at a much finer resolution how it's all working. And, you know, you may think, well, what? so what? They're just satisfying your own curiosity. But actually, I think that by understanding more detail about how that circuitry is working together, you know, so that different parts of the brain can communicate with each other, it will give us better ideas of how to use a drug like oxytocin to improve social functioning. I think when it comes to talking about neuroscience with the public, often the public is like gravitates to the the studies where it shows a whole brain change because sometimes, you know, people get lost in the details. But mm -hmm. it, I think it's really important that we understand that the brain is really, really complex. And so we need to do detailed investigations to really understand what's going on. There's a lot of different levels of interaction and processes and different areas within the brain. So um, understanding the complexity is really important to really target, if we're looking for treatments, to target a specific area or develop a specific treatment that will have, you know, real benefit and less side effects. on Right. Um, if you think about the old way of, or actually the current way, but it's based on the old way of psychiatry, it's, you know, you take a pill and that pill, that drug goes all over the brain and just activates the whole brain. And that's why drugs, you know, for treating depression, they might work a little bit, but a lot of times they don't work. Um, you know, drugs just are not that effective. And, um, you know, that's the 20th century way of, of psychiatry, just to take a pill. But uh, we need to get more precision in medicine. And where drugs not just go all over the brain, uh, but have more precision in the circuitry that they are activating. And then we can get better at treatments. And 
So the only way to do that is to do the kind of work that we can do with these little voles and mice and other animal studies where we can really understand the whole, the circuit, like the whole computer, right? I mean, how these areas communicate with each other. And then we can, you know, at some point we can say, aha, that's how we can do it, you know? And then we can um, get sort of revolutionary ideas that can really, really move us forward in psychiatry. So that's, that's, that's the goal. Um, but along the way, we learn lots of, lots of, of principles um, that gives us interesting insights into just what makes us how we are. Yeah. Yeah. There's value in just research, right? Basic right. research for understanding. It's incredibly valuable. Exactly. So we would never know, you know, about how oxytocin is plays such an important role in the mother's brain or the father's brain and uh, in relationships if we hadn't started studying you know, little rodents like rats and mice and voles and what makes them driven to take care of their babies. So um, the science, which, you know, you might think, well, is, why are you doing this? But that's this gives us incredible insights that can lead to imp improvements in our quality of life. Yeah, definitely. So I'm wondering if I ask everyone this, but what are some like big questions you would like to see answered in terms of the neuroscience of parenting, for example, or in the neuroscience of love or pair bonds? One question that I'm really interested in, and I think is really important that combines both of those areas has to do with uh, what I mentioned earlier. And, and that is that the nurturing that a infant gets I mean, we've shown this with little prairie vole pups. The licking and grooming that that infant gets, which is stimulating their, you know, their, their social touch, is somehow it's activating the oxytocin system. And over the course of time, it's sort of re re reorganizing the brain or altering the organization of the brain so that it affects later in life how they can relate to others, how they can bond with others. To me, that's... First of all, it's very, very important from everyone's perspective, right? I mean, that tells you that nurturing your baby can have a long-term impact when they're 30, 40, 50 years old and, and how they relate, not only how they are becoming parents, but how they relate to others in their community. And, and we also see that it depends on the genotype, the, the genes that the baby inherited. So if they have this genetic polymorphism that I talked about earlier that gives them high levels of receptors, then they're more sensitive to that licking and grooming if they, that can actually rescue them from the neglect. So to me, the big question is, how is it, how can we understand how that nurturing of the parent to the, or nurturing by the parent to the offspring interacts with the baby's genes and uh, acts in the brain to change how the circuits are organized, then to influence later life relationships. How does that happen? And um, so I think that's that's the big question of you know how does how does parenting received bleed into all of our relationships later in life, 
And I think by understanding that, you know, it 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 may send a really an important message to parents. You know, they can think about, you know, what I'm doing today in this very formative time in my child's life can influence how their brain is organized and therefore behave later in life, the kind of person that they will become as adults. Yeah. And I think it also makes me think of the importance it would have on changing policy for parental leave, for example. Um, If we valued parenting a bit more or the time or the importance of parenting or that early parent-child interaction and actually provided some support or better support, I think, to parents right. who wanted it so they could they can develop um, their parenting skills or help to develop their, their well, contribute to their child's development. Yeah, I mean, some, some countries have been doing that. I know in Sweden they have yeah. very strong um, both maternity and paternity leave and um, – they encourage uh, fathers to be more engaged, and uh, you know, so you know, both parents can provide that nurturing and to help build this brain. And so, yeah, I think that it can have a big impact on society. So it's, it's something that we yeah. need to to think about. It's a good investment. Maybe it's a, you know, we should think about it as an investment. Yeah, it definitely it is an investment. I often think about this because I will think about parenting a lot. But sometimes I think if we actually, if a child has a positive parent parent child relationship or one positive caregiver, or a parent has the time and the resources to actually spend a few months with their baby, how much different would outcomes be in you know in society in terms of I guess, delinquent behavior or mental health struggles and things like that. Because sometimes those early parenting patterns also in humans are going to be carried throughout life or throughout the child's like informative years, I guess. Um, When you, you know, as you, if you have a a good bond early on, you often are invested throughout uh, the early years as well. And that can Mm -hmm. impact a lot of developmental processes related to relationships or interactions with society. So, And I think, uh, you know, maybe a large proportion of the population doesn't really appreciate that, that they they don't just don't understand that, that that happens. So it's not being communicated effectively. So, you know, even just, even just increasing the, the communication that, you know, that there's a biological basis for this. It's not just, you know, this is something that we should do. It's that there is a biological basis for changes in the brain that can change behavior later in life. And um, yeah. if everyone understood that, they would, you know, sort of, they may change their own parenting styles. Oh, that's interesting you bring that up because I often talk about like that mental health, for example, is physical health because there's often this divide between what's actually in your mind or psychology and what's physiology physiologically mm-hmm. going on but you know we we know as neuroscientists and behavioral neuroscientists and biopsychologists that you can't have one without the other so there's 
almost always a physiological, there is a physiological component that is related to your environment or how you perceive it, how you behave. But it's interesting that you bring up the fact that if we talked more about the importance biologically of these early relationships or the parent-child relationship early on, maybe that would have a greater impact on how people value parenting. Exactly. So, you know, getting the word out, you know, through yeah. things like this podcast, you know, this, um, you know, can have a, a big impact in itself. Yeah. And that's one of my goals of the podcast was actually to talk science. I think, you know, everyone can learn a little bit about science or more and just to talk about the neuroscience of parenting and, and really hear from scientists so people can be informed about what's going on in their bodies and also think about, you know, how this is impacting their parenting. So right. thanks again for the chat. It's okay. like, yeah, oxytocin. It's, I mean, it's a great, a uh, great hormone. Does lots of <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah, no, it's really interesting. Questions, comments, suggestions, get in touch at Mommy Brain Revisited on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also contact me on my website at jodipaluski.com. That's J-O-D-I-P-A-W-L-U-S-K-I.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Pulling and pushing away, still bad and they're gonna stay.